If you will turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, if you're not sure where it is, open your Bible right in the middle. You're either in Isaiah or in Psalms, most likely, depending on what type of Bible you have. And if you're in Psalms, go to the right. And if you get to all those uh, little chapters with all the names you can't pronounce, you've gone too far. So go back to the left. And uh, we're going to be looking at two passages in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 4, and Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. And you'll see why I picked these in just a minute. But Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 4. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us draw together, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And then jumping over to Isaiah 44, verses six through eight. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. For our priorities are usually not your priorities. Thank you for giving us your word, which reveals to us your will and shows us why we need to put you first and look to you first and listen to you first and trust you first. And we're not very good at any of those things. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us consider what it means to recognize you before any and all things. And so we pray, speak through the words of the prophet Isaiah this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. For those who are wondering, it is honey and lemon and hot water. So. Well, in his recent book on apologetics, the author Mark Clark wrote, if you want to understand the modern view of religion, consider a scene from the comedy movie Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. By the way, it's a stupid movie. <laughs> However, if you haven't seen it, Ricky Bobby is a professional race car driver whose car crashes during a race. And thinking that he's on fire, he runs around crazy, he's running around the track and he's crying out, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, 
Help me, Tom Cruise. Use your witchcraft to get the fire off of me. Help me, Oprah Winfrey. In other words, when it comes to God, you best hedge your bets. One God doesn't necessarily exclude the other gods, so don't limit yourself to just one when you can believe in all of them at the same time. This concept has its roots in Hindu and Eastern philosophy, but the reality is it's been largely adopted in Western culture. It can be found in many popular versions, one of which has been popularized by the aforementioned Oprah Winfrey, who said, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. Now, the technical name for this phenomenon is religious pluralism. Pluralism's basic premise is that all religions are true, or at least partially true, and all have value. And in our culture, it's considered narrow-minded and judgmental to believe anything else. So how do we respond to the theology of Ricky Bobby? While religious pluralism may be a novel experience for us, it's putting us in touch with the world that surrounded the biblical authors. The pluralism and paganism of our time was actually the common experience of the prophets. In the ancient Near East, there were thousands of gods and goddesses, many of whom were known to the Israelites, indeed sometimes known far too well. Uh, nothing, therefore, um, could be more remarkable than to hear the contention, even from some today within the church, that the existence of religious pluralism makes belief in the uniqueness of Christianity impossible. Had that been the necessary consequence of encountering a multitude of other religions, then Moses, Isaiah, Jesus, and Paul would have given up biblical faith long before it became fashionable. And that's actually our topic for today, how to live faithfully in the face of religious pluralism. We've just started a new summer series on biblical priorities called First Things First. We're going to look at a number of verses that tell us to do something first. However, today we're looking at a couple of verses that don't tell us to do something first, but rather recognize what should come first in our lives. More specifically, we're to recognize who should come first. This morning we're looking particularly at Isaiah 41 and 44. And we're going to see what claims God makes about himself. We'll look at why he makes those claims. And in all of this, uh, hopefully we'll learn something new about Jesus. And we're going to do this in sort of a question and answer format, primarily because that's how the prophet Isaiah does it, both in addressing the surrounding nations, Isaiah 41, and in speaking directly to God's people, Isaiah 44. So let's start by looking at the first question, what claims does God make? And the main claim that God makes is sovereignty. That's the first blank there in your bulletin. If you can't spell sovereignty, just write God's in charge. <laughs> let's start by looking at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 
God's sovereignty in this verse is revealed by his titles. Yahweh alone is the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So God begins his explanation of himself with a magnification of his titles. And the first one is Yahweh. He begins by saying that he is Yahweh. Your English translations translate the covenant name of God, the four-letter name of the Old Testament, by using the word Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D. So when you see that in your Bible, <coughs> that's normally the English translation of the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh. That's the covenant name for God. That's how he named himself to Moses at the burning bush all the way back in Exodus 3. And actually it's a title of comfort for his people. It is a title that reminds them, I'm the covenant-keeping God. I'm the one who has pledged myself to you and will never leave you. And so Isaiah invokes that name here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to remind the Israelites that what's happening to them happens under the auspices of the very one who has pledged himself to them. God is the covenant-keeping God who has not forgotten his people. Now, why does he need to remind the Israelites? Isaiah's preaching, they're about to go into exile. And much of what he says is God is not going to forget you. God keeps his promises. God's going to bring you home. And that's what he's telling them. So he's writing just before the exile happens about what's going to come after the exile. So first he reminds them, I'm the covenant God. Second, he's the king of Israel. This is another reminder they need to hear. They're preparing or, or being prepared to be carried off to exile in Babylon. And I'm sure once there, they would be impressed, no doubt, by the military might of Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the known world who would come with his armies and is going to lead them all the way into exile. In the midst of all of that, God says, no, there's only one ever, only ever been one king in Israel and people of Israel, that king is me. That's what he tells them. The earthly kings are failures precisely because God alone was king. Only God is the one enthroned in splendor and majesty, the one who reigns as king on high. Now, actually, that's a hard concept for us to understand in this country. I mean, the last time we had a king, we threw him out. Kings don't tend to do very well here. But as Christians, we ought to rejoice in the fact uh, that God is king, that he reigns, that he's the one who speaks comfort to us in the very naming of himself, and that he is the one who is covenantally faithful. Third, he's our redeemer. The concept of being Israel's redeemer is embedded in the Mosaic law. We saw this in Deuteronomy. It is the concept of the kinsman redeemer, the concept that if somebody died in one of the lineages of the tribes of Israel and there's nobody to take his name and reclaim the inheritance, that someone else would come and be a kinsman redeemer to him. That's the story of the book of Ruth. But shockingly here, God says that he 
is Israel's kinsman redeemer. He himself will do it. He is the one who will come down and be their comforter and their redeemer. Notice what Isaiah is doing here. He's just piling on these titles so they would remember who it is that's making these promises to them. The third is redeemer. Fourth, he's the Lord of hosts. This is a military image. This is the image of military might. In other words, he's saying to us and to Israel, when you see the armies of the world arrayed in all of their pomp and circumstance, be they marching down the streets of Jerusalem or Ukraine, there's only one who commands the only armies that really matter. And he sits enthroned in heaven. His name is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And then he says, I am the first and the last. He's eternal. There is nobody else who can say that. In the midst of this false pagan idea of what's real and what's true, God comes and says, I'm the first and last. He alone is eternal. Why is that important for us to realize? Why it's important, is it important for the Israelites to realize? Because if he is the eternal one who is high and holy and our redeemer and the one who wants to comfort us, then he is the one who, be, who can be counted on to keep his word because he doesn't change. Because he never fails to keep his promises that no matter what happens to us in this life, God will be the same. He's the first. He's been there before us. He's the last. He'll have the last word. And therefore we have great hope and great comfort. He's the one to whom we must fly when we need that comfort. And until we realize that, when we get the diagnosis that none of us want, when we're told this relationship is not going to last as long as we thought, when our best friend lets us down, when all of a sudden we're told that work no longer needs us, it's only then that our theology, what we believe, becomes clear. That what is spoken here is spoken for the comfort of God's people throughout all ages. And those beliefs come home for us. It's when tragedy strikes the Israelites, like with the exile, and when tragedy strikes our own lives with our own personal uh, circumstances and personal tragedies, when they strike, we need to know that he is the first and the last, and he has not abandoned us. If God alone is God, then all pretenders are idols. So this theme of God's sovereignty forces us to face one of the most damning indictments in the Bible. And that brings us to our second question. Why does God make these claims? And the answer is simply idolatry. Idolatry. Let's back up to Isaiah 41. Here God is speaking to the nations outside of Israel. He calls them coastlands. He's talking about people outside. And it seems like it's a typical setup of the prophet Isaiah. First God asks a question. And then he answers his own question with a principle. And then he asks the second question, and he answers it, and so on and so forth. So listen again to Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 4. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. 
Let us together draw near for judgments. He's asking questions. Who has stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. So he's answered the question, and now he's asking another question. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? And the answer, I the Lord. The first and with the last, I am he. Now, from God's perspective, idolatry is always repulsive. In one sense, it is the fundamental sin, for it dethrones God and replaces him with something or someone else. Now, the historical context of this rebuke in Isaiah is critical, because idolatry is not just practiced by all the nations right around Israel, but it's by the succession of superpowers that uh, inevitably come in and take over this small country. Inevitably, Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylonians and even the Medes and the Persians, not to mention later the Greeks and the Romans, all credited their success to the power of their gods. And yet here, the God of Israel, crushed, defeated, exiled, little small Israel, claims to be the only God, the sovereign Lord, the mighty creator and providential ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he's expecting his covenant people to bear witness to this truth instead of succumbing to the idolatry around them, which sadly they find perennially attractive. So historically, a lot is going on here. We read in verse 2, he, capital H, gives up nations before him, small h. The he, capital H, is God. But what isn't clear is that the him, small h, is Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire. Cyrus is the one from the east. Cyrus is, it would be, the rising new king leading the kingdom of Medes and Persians. He's the one who's going to take over uh, nations. In the book of Daniel, we read how the empire literally changed overnight. And eventually Cyrus takes power and would issue a decree that would allow the Jews to return to their homeland. And God says all this will happen because he's going to make it happen. But keep in mind that Isaiah is writing this 100 years before the birth of Cyrus. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like to be carted off to Babylon and see nothing but all these idols all around you? And then you remember the promises of God in Isaiah where God says, there's no other God. Those idols of wood and stone, there's nothing behind them. You don't need to be afraid. What a comfort that is to them. What a comfort that is to us today as the siren song of the false gods comes through our televisions, our music, and our movies. Trust me, trust this, trust that. And God comes and says to us, there is none besides him. You have to understand, Isaiah writes actually in his whole book, but particularly in this section, with great irony. He's constantly comparing the idols against God. 
He says if the idolaters create and carry images, Yahweh creates Israel and carries his people. If idols are something which signify nothing, Yahweh is someone who acts in accord with his sovereign decrees. There's constant insults against idols and false worship, and that actually makes sense within Isaiah's presentation of the great redemptive work of the one true God. He's constantly saying, can they save you? No, guess who can save you? Yahweh can save you. Can they solve your problems? No, guess who can solve your problems? Yahweh can solve your problems. And this constant back and forth throughout Isaiah. And so readers like us, who kind of smugly look down on the ancients as a bunch of idol-worshipping pagans, we don't realize Isaiah's endgame. Now think about it with me. You need to use your imagination a little bit. What are people in the distant future going to make of our present-day culture if all they had are our cultural artifacts? They would probably wonder, why did so many citizens of the early 21st century gather to celebrate mutant heroes, imagined as human flying rodents, minerals, insects, and spiders? Will future scholars pity the cognitive deficiencies of superstitious consumers of ritual popped grain treated with churned dairy byproducts and granular sodium sitting in darkened temples? Will they propose that there must have been impairments that motivated us to repeatedly watch imaginary victories of our rodent heroes delivering industrial cities from gigantic evil creatures? Do we really want to know how future generations will describe our idolatry? Something to think about. Let's jump back to Isaiah 44, because in Isaiah 44, 7, God says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Let him set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. So here we have uh, to see the full force of Isaiah's words. He's not saying, oh, there's some other gods who may or may not exist. And if just given the chance, they're going to prove that they're worthwhile and worthy of being trusted. And maybe, in fact, they do exist. It is not what he's saying. He's saying that the very gods we make for ourselves depend on us for their existence. They wouldn't even exist except as a figment of our imagination. These verses all tell us some very insightful things about idolatry. If we, in fact, construct a God from our own imagination, that God is going to be no stronger than we are. That God is no greater than us, and therefore it can't help us. The noted theologian Dr. N.T. Wright, the Anglican bishop, and I don't agree with everything uh, Dr. Wright uh, has uh, written, but he's written a ton of stuff, and the majority of it is really, really good. But anyway, he wrote on the subject of idolatry after he was in a bookstore, and he saw a book titled The God I Want. And so he wrote, The God I Want. Left to myself, the God I want is a God who will give me what I want. He, or more likely it, will be a projection of my desires. 
All idols start out as the God somebody wanted. Nobody falls down on their face before the God they wanted. Nobody trembles at the word of a homemade God. Nobody goes out with fire in their belly to heal the sick, clothe the naked, teach the ignorant, feed the hungry because of the God they wanted. On the other hand, Dr. Wright says, Isaiah gives us Yahweh, the God whom we didn't want. How could we ever even have dreamed of, but who amazingly wanted us? He says, this is a very different God, a dangerous God, a subversive God, a God who comes to us like a blind beggar with wounds in his hands. <coughs> A God who comes to us in wind and fire and bread and wine and flesh and blood. A God who says to us, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Do we make gods for ourselves? Do we have idols that are figments of our imagination? Are we the children of lesser gods? Let me tell you a story about two best friends. It's a hard story. Their names are Lynn and Stephanie. And that's their real names, and they're real people. And they went everywhere together, from shopping and lunches to family camping and church socials. Lynn's daughter and Stephanie's son were, only, were born only a few months apart. They are sisters joined not by human bloodlines, but by God's spirit, and this proved to be a stronger bond. But then one Sunday in March a few years ago, Lynn was feeding her daughter when the phone rang. And Matthew, Stephanie's 16-month-old son, had just drowned in a few inches of water in his backyard. And the rest of the day and the weeks that followed were surreal. The trip to the hospital where Matthew was pronounced dead the memorial service, the lunch after the tragedy, the family camping trip a few months later, and throughout this season of sadness, Lynn searched for meaning and tried to make sense out of what she believed to be senseless. And when she was finally able to sum up her feelings, she was surprised to find out that she felt betrayed by God. How could he allow this to happen to such good people, his people? Was this the God whom Lynn worshipped each Sunday and prayed to all week long? And then she thought, God whispered to her, it's not me. In time, Lynn worshipped that she, or learned that she'd been worshipping the wrong God, actually gods. There are five of them. I've listed for them, if you, those of you have the uh, outline, um, five false gods, each embodied attributes that she attempted to place on the one true God. And scripture eventually helped her to recognize and refute these false gods. And today, although she sometimes struggles, she has embraced the great I am. And the rest of this is written in her own words, in the first person. These are the lesser gods she left behind. First, the God who does things my way. She says, when Matthew died, I had to accept that God had chosen to conduct his business differently than I would have. I would have intervened and stopped this tragedy. But since I serve a sovereign God, I believe that he could have changed the outcome of that Sunday's events. Yet for whatever reason, he chose not to. 
He is the God who allows free choice in a fallen world. And in a domino effect, mankind's bad decisions reach farther than we can fathom. It took me a while to let go of the God who does things my way. In doing so, I needed to admit that I don't know what is best in the long term. A greater, more informed, though less contained, God existed, and he could uh, usurp all my goals. I was being dethroned. Scripture reveals a God whose ways little resemble our own. When I read in Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, I'm forced to admit there is a God way of thinking that I will never apprehend. After all, would I have loaded a boat with animals? Would I have limited Gideon's army? Would I have wagered that David would beat the mighty Goliath? Would I have removed the sins of man by sending the Son of God? It was not difficult to acknowledge that God is smarter and greater than I am. But it was much tougher to convince myself that I was not as smart as I thought and that my ways could lead to death. I had to admit that however right it seems, going my own way apart from God's divine insight will not lead me down the right path. The realization that I needed a God who knew more than me and who wasn't in need of my own perceived brilliance was humbling. On the other hand, leaving my false God behind meant I gained a much more powerful one. This God has the independence to do things based on his superior and insightful knowledge. And he frees me from carrying the world on my shoulders. And I can be a part of his big picture. As I have embraced the God who does things his way, I have rested in his blessings and glorious insight. Second, the God who is harsh. Now that I decided to acknowledge this higher God, Lynn writes, the next struggle came in actually trusting him. After all, he let Matthew die. It's one thing to know that God does what is best. It's another to live as if he will do what is best. And the age-old question of how can a loving God allow tragic and evil things to happen made me question God. Would he take my child next? I had to realize that God is not just the big guy in the sky who waits to zap me when I screw up. It's just the opposite. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this verse rules out a God intent on handing down retribution to repentant followers. Well, maybe, maybe this God who allows such sorrow is just mean. And yet 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says that's not true. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God doesn't inflict pain, but he does bind up our sorrows with his compassion, letting it overflow to bless others. Eventually, I traded in my toxic God for the one who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, John 3.16. God gave sacrificially so that I can live. And I realized that I was safe in the hands of God who wanted to bless me in spite of myself and even die for me so that I might live in a place 
where there'll be no more tears and no more death. He was my rescuer, the God who went in and pulled me away from my fiery fate. Who couldn't love such a hero? Third, the God who's apathetic. As I sat in Matthew's funeral staring at my best friend and her husband, I asked myself whether God even cared about what they were going through. We all know how caring he is on Sunday morning when we sing praises, but does he care on Monday morning when we whimper in pain? I even found a passage I thought it showed God to be indifferent. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is about to embark on his greatest battle, and he encounters a theophany, appearance of the Lord. And so he confronts this man, and he asks him, Is there you for the Israelites, or are you for their enemy? And the Lord says, No. No. I thought God was always on our side. First, I thought this meant he was just apathetic to Joshua's plight. And then I read on Joshua 5.14, and he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? I realized this was not indifference at all. God appeared to Joshua at a time when he needed answers. Notice that God doesn't show up as a shepherd or a sacrificial lamb, but as an army commander. Just what the soldier ordered, since Joshua is in the middle of a strategic military crisis. And Joshua had to learn that God is not in the business of taking sides. Political, social, spiritual, he's in the practice of taking his own side. And his side always wins. And Joshua asked, are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? And God responds with his own question, Joshua, whose side are you on? Do it my way and win. The true God is not apathetic. He always knows where he stands. We are the ones with a decision to make. So is God at Matthew's funeral that day? Did he care? I watched Matthew's father stand in the pulpit and state that God was still in control and that he and his family still trusted in him. They placed themselves on God's side, and he came. This time is a comforter. Fourth, the God who is powerless. When situations rage out of control, we ask, why doesn't God do something? Do we serve a wimpy God? I often ask why God didn't intervene and save Matthew. Is that too much for him? When I went to God with my cries about his perceived lack of ability, he led me to the book of Job. Job was close enough to God to ask hard questions. And eventually God turned the tables on Job. He was the one that asked the hard questions. Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 38.12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? 38:33. do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? There's a dozen more questions like that. She writes, I had to admit, as Job did, Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Even when I can't understand why God allows certain tragedies, he is not shaken and his power is not destroyed. I put away my weak God and embraced the omnipotent one. And I was pleasantly surprised that embracing this all-powerful God brought a new peace. I felt the weight lift as I exchanged his light yoke for my burdensome one. 
and I realized that only he knew all the whys in life. I did not, and that was okay. He literally has the whole world in his hands. And fifth, the God who changes. The God who changes. The God I struggle most to let go of and sometimes still do is the God who's forever changing. The God is here today and gone tomorrow. This God wants me to live my life in fear that he will someday take away all my blessings and joys. This God can do the most damage because his credibility is verified by disasters, both natural and man-made. In the physical world, accidents, diseases, death enter our lives unexpectedly, attempting to shatter all hope. Wars come, trials and tribulations are guaranteed, and we seem powerless. We live in a world of change. Well, there's good changes, too. We find someone to love, marry, we have children, we get a job, we start a ministry, we point someone to Christ. But regardless, life on earth is volatile and constantly changing. Is it any wonder I expected the same from my God? The real God actually embodies what my soul longs for, constancy. Hebrews 13.8, we read that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His very nature is unchanging. He remains stable regardless of my circumstances, past, present, or future. Therefore, I'm able to move about confidently in changing times, knowing that the Lord my God goes with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. We know that from Hebrews 13.5. Now we also know it from Deuteronomy 31.6. And she writes, that's the kind of God I need. Even when the crises chip away at the foundation of my faith, my God stands unmoved, unshaken, unchanged. I had to stop being a child of lesser gods so that I could truly be the child of a greater God. The false gods I've enthroned over the years gave me nothing but grief, so I sent them packing. Occasionally they come by for a visit. And only through the truth of scripture am I able to withstand their lies about who my God really is. Today as I face life's sorrows, I do so with a God whose ways are not my own, whose mission is to love and comfort me, who calls me to join him in his best, who has enough power to make positive changes in my life, and who will stick with me and never leave me no matter what comes. He has promised me these things. He is, as the Apostle Thomas proclaimed, my Lord and my God. One more question. And if we miss this last question, then we miss the whole point. Who else makes these claims? Jesus does. Jesus, there's somebody else who's called the first and last in Scripture four times in the book of Revelation, four times in Isaiah, four times in Revelation. There's somebody else who is Israel's redeemer, and that someone else is the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself. In fact, if you take up the Gospel of John, you will notice there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. John didn't invent that. If you read Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 53, there are seven I am statements in those chapters. The Apostle John draws on Isaiah for much of his writing, the Gospel of John and the letters of John and in the Revelation of John. What's John doing? He's telling us if you read the Old Testament, if you read Isaiah, and when he writes Revelation, he also draws from Daniel and Ezekiel 
Two-thirds of the book of Revelation is direct Old Testament quotations or allusions. And John's saying, if you read the Old Testament, if you read Isaiah, you will see Jesus. He is the king of Israel, his people, his church, and unlike every other king who always failed them, who were always concerned for themselves, who were always sinful, this king is perfect. This king comes down and says, I will gather servants to send them out to serve others, and by the way, I'm the one who serves them. That's what our king says. He's the one who bled and died for us. There is no other king like him. John pictures him as the mighty captain of heaven's armies in Revelation 19, riding forth on a white horse with a name only he knows, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord God Almighty who comes to rescue his people and save them from their sin. And the Apostle John uses language from Isaiah that reinforces these basic points about Christ. In Isaiah, we read the following claims about Yahweh, and then in Revelation, John answers with the same claims about Jesus. Isaiah 41, 4, our verse today, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Revelation 1, 17, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Isaiah 44, 6, our other verse for today, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Revelation 2, 8, that's a typo in your outline. If you have it, it should be Revelation 2, 8. The words of the first and last who died and came to life. Isaiah 48, 12, I am he, I am the first and the last. Revelation 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Revelation shows Jesus as the unchanging, eternal, living God. The exalted Christ bears the name of Yahweh. He carries all the titles of Isaiah 44. And God declares the futility of idols. And he promises it in shadow form in Isaiah, but he fulfills it in Christ. And therefore, he looks at you, every one of you, this morning, and he says to you, by his spirit, through his word, you are my witnesses. Is there any God worth serving beside Jesus? I know not one. To worship any other God is futile. You need to go to the one true God, and you need to go to him first. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to come to you as you really are and not as we want you to be. Sometimes we still worship the gods of our own imaginations, the God who does things my way, the God who's overly harsh, the God who's apathetic, the God who lacks power, the God who's always changing, and then you tell us to look closer, to see you unmoved, unshaken, and unchanged, the first and last, the living one who died and came to life. And so by your grace, we ask that you would enable us to come to you as you really are. Enable us to remember who you really are. Enable us to rejoice in who you really are, and enable us to rest in who you really are. Grant that we may live as people who love you, that we may trust your promises on our worst days, 
and work in each of our hearts this summer as we learn to put first things first, to live by your priorities and not our own, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, draw us ever closer to the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.